You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. The message today, we're in a series, we're in part three uh, of our series, Unpause, Breaking Spiritual Stagnation. How to break spiritual stagnation. And uh, stagnation is, just to define it, it's, it's what happens when what should be flowing stops flowing. Uh, when what should be advancing stops advancing. When things just get stuck and uh, when things stop moving in the direction that they should. And uh, in all of our lives, there's areas where we can become stagnant. We can become stagnant in our relationships, uh, even in our marriages, our homes, our relationship with our kids can become stagnant. Uh, our, our, really, there's so many areas, but I believe that hitting this one, the, the spiritual stagnation is so important because everything, if you don't know, whether you realize it or not, everything in our life is spiritual. So, so we think just going to church on Sunday and reading our Bible, that's spiritual, but everything that God gave us, everything God created in our life and everything God's called us to be and do is spiritual in some way. And so this is important because when, when we're spiritually stagnant, it affects every area of our life negatively. When we're growing in our faith, our marriage is better. When we're growing in our faith, we become better parents. When we grow in our faith, we're better on our jobs. We're better bosses and workers. Whatever it is that we do, we are better at it because of our foundation of faith. And so we want to deal with this issue of spiritual stagnation. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 is uh, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all the things that the world worries about and people stay up at night thinking about. He says, all that's gonna be taken care of. All that'll be added, but here's what you should do. Instead of worrying, seek first. The issue is oftentimes, I think stagnation is most often a result of lost or misplaced priorities. When we forget what needs to be most important, what should be first. And Jesus says it right here, seek first the kingdom. I've got three points today for those taking notes. The first one is this, choose first things first. Choose first things first. Well, to choose first things first, we've got to know what first things should be. And how do you identify what your priorities should be? My experience has been that uh, often what I think is important in a season doesn't end up being so important. Uh, How many of you are still worried about what you were worried about when you were 16 in high school? How many of you, how many, some of you are like, I'm there right now. No, Uh, so, so, so listen, there's so many seasons of life. I think of jobs I've had and places I've been where there's been seasons where I was really stressed out about a particular situation. And now I look back and go, why was I so worried about that? Why was I, why was that, why did that matter so much? What used to matter doesn't matter as much anymore. And that's true in every season, but there's always got to be things that are priorities. And I think we identify because if we, if we're not careful, careful, what's urgent will always take the place of what's necessary. What's what's urgent, what comes in front of us. Anybody put out some fires this week? Anybody got some stuff that you didn't expect, you didn't plan for? Uh, And it's those things that I think really derail us. Uh, I've said this the last couple weeks, but we're in New Year's resolution season, uh, and 92% of resolutions will not pass the month of January. And I think some of that reason, last week we talked about the issue of desire and passion and and pursuit, the why behind what we do, but I think now I want us to focus on the issue of priorities, because priorities set the the standard, priorities establish what matters. And, And I think that 
when it comes to priorities, identifying what should be first, there's two things we need to look at. The first one is our vision. Vision is so important. Now, vision is usually a word that's thrown around in the business world and uh, concerning organizations. You know, businesses have a vision statement and, and that's fine, that's good. But vision is where you're going. And, and you need a vision for your life. You need a vision for your, your family. You need a vision for your future. Proverbs 29, 18 in the King James says this, without vision, people perish. If you don't know where you're going and you don't have a God-breathed vision for your life, you're just going to go through day-to-day, go through your routines, go through your motions, and maybe just stay in survival mode, and you'll never do the things that matter most. People who live for something that matters more than today will always will be more committed, will sacrifice what's needed, and pursue what really matters. But, but when we don't live with priorities, vision establishes what's a priority. I've got to know where I'm going. So in the Bible, I, I mentioned this last week, in the Bible there's a story of Esau who sold his inheritance, his birthright, for a bowl of soup. He sold out his future, he sacrificed something that was of incredible worth and value for something incredibly short-term today. We do this all the time. When we don't live with a future, a God-breathed future in mind, we will sacrifice our character today, we'll sacrifice our family today, we'll sell out our values today. We've got to live for something tomorrow that really matters, and that's what vision establishes. But when we get there, who are we gonna be? And and, and vision is important, but you also have to have values. Those two things establish your priorities. You've got to live with vision and you've got to live with values. Values are who you are. We have a banner in, in our hallway on the south side entrance that says who we are, and it's got several values established. These are the things, you know, in church, church measures change often by decades. Hello, somebody. Like we, you know, the carpet's purple. It's gonna be purple. My grandfather put that carpet in at the church and it's gonna be there until I die. And we measure things sometimes by even centuries in the church. So change is, is something that I think the church often overlooks and actually needs to have happen. Change is good. Change is not a bad thing, but there's some things you never change. There's some things that always should be changing. There, there's styles and there's, there's methods that we use and there's how we reach people. It should change with the generation, but there's some things, that's why we have at the very top of our values as a church, Jesus is our message. There, there's, no, there's no sermon, there's no song that can change somebody's life, but the name of Jesus and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ can reach anyone, save anyone, free anyone, and set any captive free. Amen. That message never changes. It's a message that's been around for 2,000 years and no matter how much it's attacked, criticized, critiqued and tries to get watered down in some cases, that message is the only thing that is the hope for humanity. We need the message of Jesus. That's a value. And in your own life, there have to be certain things that are, are geared towards where you're going. You've got to know where your marriage is going. You've got to know where your family is going. You've got to know what your future is with God. And I think it's more than just, you know, me coming up with goals. And I believe, you know, my wife and I do this as a practice now. We, we set goals for the year and things we want to do in our family, our personal life, our church, whatever it is. And I think that's good, but we need a God-breathed vision. Here's what Proverbs 29, 18 in the New King James says, a little bit different wording. It says, without revelation, people cast off restraint. 
So if I don't live with a revelation of the purpose and plan of God, if I don't live with, hey, God's got something tomorrow that's greater than what I'm dealing with right now. If I don't live with revelation, I will sell out my future for something temporary today. So vision's important, and then we need values. The values are the things that don't change. They establish what is important. If you live with values, what really matters, some people when they're looking for a spouse, they look at a lot of things, but they don't look at values. Different values will create problems down the road. Are you with me in the house? So values matter. Values determine who are you gonna be when you get to the destination? Values are your non-negotiables. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus stopped by one of his favorite places to visit. He would preach in town after town. He would heal the sick. He would do all these miracles. He'd teach his word. But there was one place, he, he went everywhere out of mission, but he went one place because he just liked to hang out there. And, and, and that place was a, a, the house, the residence of Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And I think the reason why Jesus liked to hang out there is because we know from the story of, of, of this family that they were people of worship, especially Mary. She had a heart for worship. She had a heart for Jesus. And she over and over displayed her heart of worship. And, and because of that, Jesus just liked to hang out there. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, as a church, I want this to be a place God likes to hang out. I want this to be a place where he's welcome. And, and, and that's so important. So Jesus comes to this house and he's there and, and, and Martha's making lunch. She's preparing the meal and she's busy and she's, she's caught up. And then she notices that Jesus is in the living room and her sister, who she expected to be helping her, was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And, and, and like none of us do, she, she, rather than go to her sister, she complains to Jesus about her sister. You've never done that, right? Complain to God about, okay. She goes, she says, Jesus, you gotta tell my sister to help me. And then Jesus says this, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But there's actually one thing that's necessary. There's only one thing that's needed at the moment. It's, it's not any of the activity and any of the busyness, as good as that is, because sometimes it's not even the bad stuff that distracts us from values and distracts us from vision. It's actually the ordinary. It's actually the urgent. It's the pressure we put on ourselves. And she's so caught up in activity at the moment, she misses the person of Jesus in the room. And she only goes to Jesus to complain about her sister. Jesus says, one thing's needed. And this is what I want you to catch. Mary has chosen that. Mary's chosen that. What was Mary doing? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus, undistracted, devoted, focused on the most important presence and person in the room. The most important activity at the moment was not all the stuff they would do for Jesus. Some of us need to set that priority this year that we're not just doing things for him, but we're spending time with him. He says, I'm not taking that away from her. She's chosen it. That's why point one is you've got to choose to put first things first. If you don't decide beforehand what really matters and what's really important, life will dictate it for you. People, pressure, things will happen that will take away the things that should matter, that will fill your time. So, so, so in my family, um, my wife and I, whenever we travel, she is the packer in the family. Not like cheesehead packer, but the packer. 
She packs the suitcases. I had to be careful because a couple of my Viking fans in the back of the room are about to throw something at me. Um, she, she, she's the one that packs the suitcase because when I've done it in the past, I tend to do, like a lot of guys, I ball up and I shove. I ball it up and I shove, and then it's a disaster when I get it out of there, and there's usually not room. So she, she meticulously prepares and, and, and thinks about what are we gonna be doing on this trip and what do we need? And so she's evaluating what is important because the things that are most important have to go in the suitcase first. Otherwise, there won't be room for what matters and you'll have to leave something out. How many of you have ever packed way too much for a trip? Some of you have a solution. You're like, I have no problem with that. I just take more suitcases. <laughs> and it's important that we understand that when we put something into our life, it's like the suitcase. We have to take something out that doesn't matter to add something that's absolutely necessary. That's why we live by values. Haggai chapter one and two. Uh, Haggai's a minor prophet, Old Testament book. And, and minor doesn't mean that it's less important. It means that it's a smaller book. It's actually only two chapters. So it's a super easy read. Uh, and, but it's, it's, its message is so powerful because the book of Haggai is a message to a people. Israel had spent a generation away from the promised land. The temple in Jerusalem had been in ruins. The Babylonians tore it down, burned it with fire, sacked it, and took away all of the stuff that was in it. And, and God called them, that people, he said, it's time to go back home. And as you go back home, you're not just going to resettle and rebuild your homes and rebuild your, your family in, the, the, in Israel, but you're coming first and foremost to rebuild the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. So God gave them a place to go, but he also gave them a purpose to live for. He gave them a priority. And as they went, some time went by and they got discouraged. They got distracted because things weren't working the way they thought in the time they thought. And then they also got preoccupied with other things, good things, necessary things, but not the mission. Not the purpose for which they were put on the earth, the purpose for which they were sent. God called them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Haggai 1 verse 2 is the message from God through Haggai to the people. He says, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying this people says, the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. And the, Lord, the, the word Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses in this temple in Jerusalem, this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you bring in little. You eat, but don't have enough. You drink, but are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. You go to high V and there's no eggs left. Oh, I added that one. <laughs> he who earns wages, earns wages to put a bag with holes in it. In other words, they're, they're, they're preoccupied with things that are necessary, but they're not the mission. They're not the reason for which they were put on the earth. And as much as they're accumulating and as much as they're gathering and as much as they're working, it's not filling, it's not satisfying, and it's not enough. But can I just tell you, if you'll live for a God-breathed dream and a God-breathed purpose in your life, and every single person in here has one, you just find Jesus and he'll begin to unfold it. When you live for that, when you encounter and walk with him and he begins to deposit something that's greater, the most fulfilled people in life are the people who are living their purpose out. And so here's what happens in chapter two. They begin to turn, they begin to respond to that word. 
And God said, actually chapter one, verse 13, the Lord's messenger then said, I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the governor, the leader, and the spirit of Joshua, who's the high priest, and the spirit of all the people. And they came and they worked on the temple, the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month, the second year of Darius, go to chapter two, verse 18, it says now, consider now from this day forward. The first consider in chapter one was evaluate what's not working. What's, what's leaving you empty. But the second one is consider now from this day forward. He actually gives the date. And I believe there's a reason why. He says from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is a seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yielded fruit from this day. The 24th day of the ninth month. What was that day? It was the day they said yes. It was the day they began to rebuild the temple. It was the day they did what they were purposed by heaven to do. God said that day. He says, from that day forward, I'm gonna bless you. From that day forward, when you chose to put the priority in place, and you know, I, I, listen, I used to look at Sunday as the end of the week. Like you worked hard all week, you get to the weekend, you're spending time with friends and family, and then you get to Sunday and just kind of finish up the week. But you know, Sunday is actually the first day of the week. And today you're giving God your first, the first of the week. When you're spending time with Jesus in the morning and you're giving him the first of the day, here's what he said to them, and I believe his word to us. When we can choose to put first things first, God can bless the rest. He said, from this day forward, I'll bless you. From this day forward, when you're living for your purpose, when you're doing what you're called to do. Colossians 1, verse 16 says, for by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. The thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him, that is Jesus, and for him. It's not just through him, it's not just by God's power, but all things were made for him as well. And he's before all things and in all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. I'm sure you use preeminence like five times today before breakfast. <laughs> preeminence is a word we don't use often, but it's a word that means this. It's the most important. First above all others first without equal, first without rival. He has preeminence over everything else. Why? Because not only did he make everything, but it's all for him. And even what was for him that left him through sin, that was us. We chose our own life and our own sin over God. And yet he loved us so much, he came to purchase what was already his, to redeem us back to God. All things are for him and through him. If Jesus can fix the biggest problem of our life, which was sin, Sin was the problem every person alive has and has had from, all of, from the very beginning. Then he can help with all the other problems too, church. Are, are you with me in the house? So, so we start everything with Jesus. When we start everything with Jesus, he can bless the rest. When we start our day by meeting with Jesus, we can start our relationships, our friendships by praying for our friends, by praying for our coworkers. What if we started our marriage with Jesus? Do you know how I knew my wife was the one? We had our first coffee date after church and the fire of heaven fell like better than any church service I ever went to. We were in a Barnes and Noble coffee shop and it was like, God just showed up. I'm like, this is the woman I'm gonna marry right here. Values, 
<laughs> but, but I want you to catch this because if we start, and some of us need to restart some things with Jesus at the first by devoting. What if we devoted our marriage to Jesus? What if we devoted our relationships to him? What if we started our budget? And I know that's a word that makes some people cringe. By giving to Jesus first. What if we parented by dedicating our kids to Jesus? We dedicate our children to the Lord. Why is that important? Listen, it's always been hard to raise kids. I don't think there's a time in human history where it's been easy to raise kids. But I do think in some ways it is more difficult because of the amount of pressures, the amount of influences, the amount of voices that are absolutely contrary to the word of God. Can I just say that? Like there's some things in the world that are contrary to the things of God. That's why you've got to know what God's word says. But as we know what he says and we realize there's this, this like almost tidal wave, it's actually possible to raise your kids for the things of God by first dedicating them to Jesus. If Jesus is first, everything else will be blessed. Next two points. Prayer, um, prayer is the secret ingredient <laughs> of every spiritual advancement. So, so um, not only is my wife the packer in the family, she's also like the best cook in our family. So there's only one thing though that I make that's way better. Not better, I shouldn't say that. There's one thing that I make that, that, that I make better than anybody I know and it's, it's really super complicated. It's grilled cheese. <laughs> it's super complicated. But, but I, I, the reason it became the best in our family a couple years ago is I found an ingredient that I never used before. And it's a secret ingredient, I'm not telling anybody and I'm swearing my kids to secrecy. A couple years ago, I started, it's real simple, but, but, but this one little change. Have you ever eaten something that, that should be common, but it has something different in it? And you go, what is in this? What's in this sauce? What is, what's the difference? And, and, and I found out I couldn't tell my kids what it was because one of my kids didn't like the thing when I told them what it was. So I stopped telling them. I just made them the grilled cheese and they loved it. But, but it's, it's so huge because the secret ingredient is what changes the recipe. And your faith and mine, the secret ingredients of every spiritual event, it's actually not a secret, is prayer. If you wanna know the difference between those who stay bound and those who become free, it's prayer. I think, this is my opinion, I don't know how this works out theologically, but I believe that every single person in here who's had an encounter with God, who's been saved, who's experienced a relationship with Jesus, somebody was praying for you. Somebody prayed you into the kingdom. Somebody was praying for you when you were at your lowest point. And, and so we had people praying for us that cleared the way. Prayer is this secret ingredient. I, I'm, I love history. I'm kind of a nerd that way. And, but one of the things I, I remember hearing about years ago was uh, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire had a secret weapon that their navy was almost undefeatable. And the reason was they had something called Greek fire. I should have put a picture up. It, it was this, like they had this, almost like a fire hose that could literally shoot this, some kind, of, some kind of special mix of oil that could launch fire, literally fire at the enemy ships. And to this day, for almost a thousand years, this, the Eastern Roman Empire used this against their enemies and we still can't recreate it because we don't know what was in it. And their own ships would not be burned, but they could just decimate enemy fleets who would come against them. That Greek fire had a secret, it was a secret weapon that gave them victory over their enemies. Prayer is the secret weapon of the church. There is one thing that the devil is more terrified of than any potluck we can come up with. 
There is one thing that terrifies hell more than any activity of the church, more than anything we do, and that's, be, that's why he fights it more than anything else. Listen, when you pray, and you can be a Christian for five seconds, it doesn't matter if you've been in church for 30, 40 years and you, you, know, you installed that purple carpet. It does, that doesn't make your, your prayers more spiritual than the person who's been saved for five minutes. But here's what I can tell you. The devil is terrified that you will begin to use your secret weapon. Because the thing that'll change your family is a mom and dad praying. The thing that'll change your future, that'll change your workplace. I, I've seen it. I've seen it. We, we, my wife and I both worked at different places, but I remember each of us starting prayer meetings praying over our workplaces, praying. I showed up before anybody else was there and I'd pray over that place. I'd get all Pentecostal and put oil in places that shouldn't have had oil. <laughs> but I, I just started, because, and God began to move. What if instead of complaining about Mary, about the situation, you would go to Jesus and not complain about it, but pray heaven down on it? Okay, I gotta stop preaching. Give me a second. Prayer is your secret weapon. Prayer is the secret ingredient. Acts chapter 12, uh, James is one of the first martyrs. James is a leader in the church along with Peter and other disciples and James is arrested by King Herod and he's put to death. And when, when Herod sees how popular that decision was, when he sees how successful he was incurring the favor of people by, by killing and murdering uh, James, he put Peter in prison too. And suddenly this massive wave of persecutions arising against the church and, and, and Peter's put in prison and he's not just put in prison, but he's put under lock guard and he's put, they put layer after layer after layer of security to keep Peter from escaping and to keep people, keep people from breaking him out. So Herod makes it absolutely impossible for Peter to escape. The church looks at this situation and goes, this is crazy, this is impossible, what do we do? Constant prayer. Watch this. Acts chapter 12. Let's look at verse, verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Constant prayer. It's one thing to pray in a moment. It's one thing, and I've, I've prayed those prayers where you just kind of hit rock bottom. You're like, I don't know what else to do, God. If you don't change this, I don't know what else I'm going to do. And you pray out of desperation and that's, that's, that God hears those prayers. I want you to understand that. But there's something about somebody that says, I'm gonna get a hold of the promise. I'm gonna get a hold of Jesus and I'm not gonna stop praying until I see heaven change the situation. And, and the church is constantly praying in this house. And, and, and all of a sudden, in answer to that, Acts 12, I'll just summarize it. You can read it yourself. An angel shows up in the prison cell. And the night before, Peter's gonna be led before Herod to be executed just like James. As they're praying, constant prayer is being offered and this angel shows up in response and busts Peter loose. As, he, as the angel, angel wakes him up, Peter still, he, he thinks he's dreaming. He sees the angel, he's like, what is going on? And he's got chains on. And as soon as the angel speaks to him and touches him, those chains break because that's what happens when you pray, church. When you pray, chains are broken over your family. Chains are broken. That person that was bound is set free. You keep praying. Constant prayer changes generations. The angel opens the door walks Peter right out, past the guards. 
Jen and I were at a conference a couple years ago with a, a, one of the founders of the underground church in China and he had the exact same thing happen to him. He literally walked out of a Chinese prison one time. God just opened all the doors. <laughs> walked right past the guards. As soon as he walks out the door, a taxi cab showed up. It's a true story. And, and, and listen, the result of this, so Peter goes, he goes, he finds the church, he finds the house they're praying in. He knocks on the door and they send a little girl to the door. The church is praying. They're, we're busy praying. They, they send a girl to the door. She opens the door and she goes, hey, it's Peter. And the super spiritual people praying go, no, it can't be. He's in prison. It's real. They, prayer should be persistent. Constant prayer is being offered. Prayer should also be expectant. What if God answered that prayer? What if you prayed in expectation that that answer is gonna walk through the door at any moment? What if the thing you're praying for walked right through into the room? I, my, one of my favorite things to hear from people, people walk up to me and they're like, see that person? I've been praying for them for 10 years. What if the thing you've been praying for shows up? Peter steps in and they rejoice, they see it's him and they celebrate and, and God answered persistent, constant prayer. Prayer should be fervent, it should be persistent. It should be, one other thing it should be is specific. We don't know if God's answering prayers if we pray very vague prayers. God, let there be peace on earth. My, my favorite prayer we have, literally, this is our, by the way, I need to warn all the parents in here. Half of your kids are praying for their dead pets from 10 years ago to be resurrected from the dead. That's a, my kid, our kids' pastors have told us this often. <laughs> so just, just be forewarned. If, if Boots shows up at the door, they, okay. Number three is you can fast forward. I'm gonna talk a moment about the thing that I know everybody's super excited about, this fasting. We're actually in a season as a church of prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting are powerful. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. Prayer connects us to God. Fasting disconnects us from the world. Sometimes we need to be more connected to God. And sometimes what's keeping us from being more connected is something in the world that's taking our focus, our attention, our appetites, whatever it is. And fasting and prayer together produce powerful life-changing results. It's not just for a monk in a monastery. Prayer is not a religious ritual. It's not a religious activity. It's powerful, and so is fasting. Fasting is more than a diet. It's not just getting you ready for the summer in that bathing suit. Prayer and fasting are the secret weapons of the kingdom of God. And I think the reason the world hasn't seen a powerful church in generations, capital C church, is because of the fact of many times we're a prayerless church. A generation needs to get back to prayer and fasting. And if we'll have prayer and fasting together, we'll see the results they talk about in the Bible and that many people see because prayer and fasting are the secret weapons. They're the secret ingredients. And you can fast forward. I think one of the biggest keys to breaking spiritual stagnation is setting time aside to be alone with God in prayer and fasting. It clears the road, clears the distractions. I wanna give you a couple quick things that prayer and fasting do, especially fasting. Uh, Ezra chapter eight. Verse 21, fasting, uh, here's what Ezra does. Ezra is a part of that generation that Haggai was talking to. Those, those books parallel one another. 
And, and Ezra's at the front end of that parade. They're leaving the, the foreign country. They're leaving Persia, which is where the, the, the people have been carried away to. They're in Persia and Ezra's coming back and he's been given, the king gave him every resource they need to rebuild the temple. But they're, they're so full with the resource, he goes, I can't go on this journey because if we take this road, we're gonna be in danger. There's robbers, there's thieves, there's all these things along the way that are hazards and they're gonna take everything we have and not only that, but our very lives are gonna be in danger. So as they're evaluating the route, here's what he does. Ezra does something that I think is so key for all of us. He prays and fasts, he calls a fast for direction. Ezra chapter eight, verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us, our little ones and all our possessions. Fasting produces and leads us to direction as we humble ourselves. Pride and humility are huge, huge things. Pride is not just somebody bragging about how they're better and this is what they've got going on or their family, they post about how awesome their kids are and you feel like your kids are a mess and they're climbing up the walls. Pride is not just boastfulness. It can, it, can, it can result in that, but the root of pride is something I think all of us on some level can deal with, and pride is simply independence from God. It's saying, God, I can do things my way. I'm disconnecting from, from, from what you're calling me to do, and I'm gonna choose my path. Independent. Humility is the opposite. Humility is saying, God, even if I think I know where to go, I need your direction. Even if I think I know what to do, even if years have taught me this is what I should do, I'm gonna seek you. I'm gonna humble myself and say, God, what do you wanna say? What do you wanna do? Fasting leads to direction. Fasting brings clarity. It'll sharpen your spiritual senses like nothing else. I'm just telling you. Now, can I just help some people? I know some of you may have been a part of this 21-day fast and those, those first three days, you're still detoxing that butterfinger. And you got that, so, so just keep sticking with it and you'll have some clarity, I promise. You will, clarity, there's, a, there's something about fasting that you position your heart to hear the voice of God like nothing else. Fasting produces power, quick story. In Mark chapter nine, uh, a father brings his son in desperation to the disciples. His son is dreadfully tormented by a demonic spirit. He brings his son to, to the disciples, to the church, to the religious crowd. And he brings them and the disciples try everything they know. They're trying all the principles. They bust out the books, you know, 12 steps to deliverance. And they're going through all the things. And they've even seen it before. They've seen Jesus sent them from town to town and they preach the kingdom and they heal the sick and they, they cast out demons. They've done this before. And, and I think sometimes we rely on old methods instead of on a fresh word. We rely on the way that we've always done things instead of what is God calling me to do in this moment, at this season. And they tried, but they failed. And the father takes his son in desperation now to Jesus. Says, if you can do anything, please save my son, heal my son, set him free. I tried to take him to your disciples, but they couldn't do it. Prayerlessness produces powerlessness. And Jesus then sets this boy free. And afterward, the disciples ask Jesus a really important question. They come to him when they're alone and they say, Jesus, how come we couldn't do this? 
How come we couldn't cast out this thing that was tormenting this child? How come we couldn't? How come we were powerless? You know what Jesus says in response? Go to the next verse. He said, this kind only comes by two things, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting combined together produce spiritual power in my life. They, they clear the road for me to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power at work. So that I can do... So, Prayer makes my spirit stronger, faster makes my flesh weaker. Some of us are listening to the flesh more than we're listening to God. It's quiet in the service now. And if you wanna be free, there's power available in Jesus for every single one of us and prayer and fasting produce or connect us to God in a way that we need to experience that power. Last one, Jason, if you wanna get ready. As we fast for favor. Same generation as Ezra, same time frame. In Persia now, as Israel, as the Israelites are coming back and they're rebuilding the house and they're they're busy about the work of the temple and the city, there comes a plot to stop it all and literally put to death every single Jew in the entire Persian Empire. There's a plot from the depths of hell to massacre and wipe out an entire race of people. And here's what happens. One of them, a Jewish girl, God has given her a tremendous opportunity. Her name's Esther. She's brought into the house, into the palace of the king of Persia. She's made the wife of the king of Persia. And she is, she is I mean, she's getting pampered every day. She's got a, a, a never-ending Target gift card. She has everything she could ever want and she's incredibly favored and she's in the house of the king. She's disconnected from the needs of her own people at that moment. And she hears word that there's a certain day that the enemy is plotted because somebody convinced the king that, that, that the, the Jews were undermining the Persian empire and that on a certain day, all their lands would be seized, all their things would be taken and they could even be put to death. And on a certain day, it was marked on the calendar, that would be the day that all of the Jewish people would be wiped out. And Esther hears word. And you know what she does? She could have sat back and said, well, this doesn't affect me, not my problem. I'm so sorry for you guys, but I'm here in the palace. I'm living in comfort. Do you know what she does? She fasts and prays because she's now gonna go before her husband, the king. But in those days, in the court of a Persian king, you didn't just, even though you were married to the king, you couldn't just appear before the king unless you were invited. And to break the protocol of the Persian Empire meant you could be put in prison, lose your position, and even be put to death yourself. That's how important to them their protocols were. And Esther knows this, and so what she does, thinking the door is shut, there's no way to do this, she asks all of her people to pray and fast with her. Because they don't just need the favor of a king in that moment, they need the favor of God. The favor of God will open doors that nothing, no striving, manipulating, uh, uh, arguing, dividing, nothing else can open. God can open doors at your job. God can open doors in your future for your family. So she prays and fasts with them and she goes before the king. And it's a longer story, but in response to her intercession for the people, here's what the king does. The king says, well, I can't change that decree because that was their their practice. You couldn't just cancel it. 
But he says, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna have you write a new decree. I'm gonna have you write a new one in my name as the king. And you're gonna write that. And here's what they wrote. The very day that the Israelites were gonna have, the Jews were gonna have everything they owned taken away, that day they could take up swords and fight for their own property. That day they could defend themselves. On the day that they were legally to be wiped out in the laws of the Persians and destroyed and everything they have taken in answer to that favor. Watch what it says in Esther chapter nine, verse one. On the day, on the very day that all of this was to take place, the opposite occurred. Do you know what prayer and fasting does? When the enemy has a plot, it not only gets stopped, the opposite happens. When he tried to curse you, people start blessing you. When you thought you'd be bound, he brings freedom. When you thought that that person would never change, heaven comes in and brings them back home. Some of us are gonna have some knocks on the door. That person we never thought could be reached. That issue we never thought we'd be free from. The opposite occurs. Would you stand to your feet? I'm going to ask our prayer team to come. Prayer connects us to God. And sometimes we get intimidated. If if we're honest, we get intimidated by the idea of prayer. We think, I don't have the right words. Do you know when you're a kid, when you're little, and not all of us had great, you know, some of us had bad experiences with our families, our parents. But when you're in a loving environment and you can go to your parent, you're not thinking of, do I have, am I going to ask them for Cheerios in King James? And we think to go to God, there's gonna be, we have to say all the right words. But what if like a child, we said, God, I need you. God, I need your help. I need you to work in my family. God, I need you to save my marriage. God, I need your help. And we cried out to God, what if today you're in here and you don't have a relationship with God? It starts with a simple yes to Jesus. It starts with a simple call of his name that we sang about today. Jesus, I need you. And I wanna lead you right now in a very simple prayer that can change, that can set you on the course to everything being different, but it all starts with a relationship with God. It all starts with Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads. We trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about River City Church, find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co.